fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Great to be here, Dan, and I'm finally, finally dressed for the episode. It is about time. We're approaching 100 episodes then, and if you can believe that. But of course, the man who's always dressed for the occasion is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, this week, Dan, I'm in the map room of the lost city of Tannis. There's some amazing engineering here with the focusing of the light on the map at certain times of the day. I want you to stay there, Ben, because we're going to talk about the map room in just a minute because there is a lot of fun stuff going on there. Uh, But of course, I've got to tell you, we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, probably my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Uh, As we continue our Spielberg spring, we're going to look at some of the best Steven Spielberg movies of the 80s, 90s, and today. And first of all, when you're talking about Indiana Jones, guys, We cannot discuss an Indiana Jones movie without first talking about that bullwhip that he's always carrying around. I I think this is probably my favorite part of the movie, arguably one of the most unique parts of the movie as well, because I can't think of another adventurer who uses the whip to to as much success, possibly Simon Belmont, who we covered in our Castlevania episode. But Indiana Jones is up there, and there's a lot of fun physics going on here. Denon, I know you like the bullwhip. I'm pretty sure you have one with you. Let's talk about how it works. Well, Dan, first of all, just a quick aside here, anecdotally, since you mentioned about having a bullwhip, I do not have one with me, and it's a great regret of mine. I was at a physics conference as an undergraduate, graduate student, actually in Hungary. We went to a horse and whip show, an entire physics conference, and let's just say because of the exciting physics of the whip, the sonic boom, I've never seen like 50 physicists all trying to learn to use a whip at the same time, and I think they sold more whips in that show than they ever did before. I, unfortunately, as a poor starving grad student, had no money, could not buy a whip, and to this day have not owned one. Very sad. Best I could do was the hat. That's super depressing, Denon. That's terrible. Oh, I know. It was very depressing. I regret that to this day. You know, Christmas is just around the corner. I say that in every episode because I don't know when people are going to be watching or listening to this, but Christmas is just around the corner. So, you know, maybe keep a spot open on your desk is all I'm saying. Well, I will do that. Thank you so much. Um, And as you said, the physics of the bullwhip is an amazing thing. It breaks the sound barrier. This is the fundamental thing. We're all used to airplanes breaking the sound barrier, but the bullwhip does it. um, And that's where you get the loud crack. That's where you get a lot of the exciting effects of the whip. But Indiana Jones also uses my other cool favorite physics, friction. One of the most underrated elements of physics. When he wraps that whip around the pole to swing across, he has to get the heavy part, the thick part of the whip, over the skinny part, leverage friction to do it. So between friction and that sonic boom, you've got a lot of basic physics you can build on to do some cool engineering design. And I'm sure Ben can help us through those steps. Yeah, so what's really cool about the, the bull whip is the, uh, is the tapering. The tapering of the whip is is the magic behind how the how it can exceed the speed of sound. As the as you get further closer and closer to the end of the whip, the the weight of the whip is lowering. And so the amount of energy you put into your end, which is the heavy end, 
um, as that uh, goes ac across the whip, uh, that amount of energy is able to move the, the whip material faster and faster and faster. And towards the end, it's able to exceed the speed of sound. It's not actually the tip that breaks the speed of sound. I mean, the tip does break the speed of sound, but the speed of sound can actually be exceeded um, much further up the up the whip than you would think. And that crack can come um, long before the, the tip actually uh, cracks. You know, Ben, I think that, that you're mentioning a lot of fun stuff there. And I, I got really interested in this. I went down a rabbit hole and I found a, a master of the bullwhip and his name's Anthony DeLongas. I'm going to put a couple of his videos up on our website. And he calls the whip the supersonic flexible knife, which is a great tagline. Although I'm not 100% sure it's accurate because a bullwhip is significantly more bulky than a knife itself. But I'm wondering, you know, we're talking about sonic booms here. A couple things come to mind. First of all, guile. Sonic Boom from Street Fighter 2, which is his main weapon. It's pretty incredible. He also kicks his feet with incredible speed. But there's also the Pistol Shrimp, which we've talked about several times, who can whip his hands around and break the sound barrier. Uh, I'm going to ask you, Ben, if we're looking at the, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, where does the whip itself fit uh, in between Guile and the Pistol Shrimp? Well, since since you got to hold the right for two seconds on Guile, um, I'm assuming he's getting to Mach 2, which is pretty similar to uh, what uh, the best whippers can get to. They can get the, the tip speeds on those whips almost to double the speed of sound. You know, you know what I like about that um, is this idea of using how long it takes to do something to f really figure out the physics of the speed of sound. Um, what's interesting, of course, is what our airplanes get to. Um, and I find, you know, this a fascinating connection because it took us so long to figure out how to get an airplane to break the speed of sound. And yet we could do it with whips much earlier. And, and it really makes me wonder people like, oh, you can never get the airplane, but the whip already worked. Now I know there's a big difference between engineering a whip and an airplane, but I'm kind of a simple-minded physicist. Once something can do it, I figure something else can be built to do it. But Ben, I don't know. Am, am I, am I being wholly illogical here? Well, I think I think the main thing is the whip is made out of a nice flexible material leather, which is pretty robust and doesn't have, uh, you know, the, the energy is coming from a moving wave along the whip. It just kind of comes automatically. Breaking the sound barrier with an airplane is a lot more difficult because the vibrations you get in in the structure of the airplane as you approach the speed of sound um, do wreck all sorts of havoc on the systems of the airplane. It was less a problem to get the energy to exceed the, exceed the speed of sound than it was to build an airplane that didn't shake itself to pieces um, while trying to do it. Uh, when uh, Chuck Yeager was breaking the sound barrier, the real concern was that the vibrations would break the, sh the airplane apart more so than whether or not there was enough energy in the rocket to get the, the uh, Bell X-1 up to speed. Well, that's good to know because I really don't want my airplane shaking apart on me. <laughs> and neither, neither do I, Dennis. Neither do I. Well, you know, we're talking about sonic booms. Those are extremely loud. But one of the other fun technologies we see right off the bat in, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie is the blow dart, the blow gun. Uh, this is a super silent killer. Uh, um, I, I think it, it's... At least technologically speaking, this is one step up from a spitball gun you would make in high school. Uh, I, I'm I, well, you guys are going to get into the physics here, but I really love the idea of poison darts in a blowgun. Although I'm not 100% sure how accurate they are, uh, Ben, I'm going to ask you because I feel like you have some firsthand knowledge using a blowgun. Yeah, that's right. I had a friend back in elementary school, which 
Seems kind of dangerous now that I, as an elementary school, got to play with a blow dart uh, gun. Wasn't a poison tip, though, was it? No, they were just like giant thumbtacks and a uh, plastic uh, plastic uh, pipe. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, the physics of them are really interesting because you're basically taking... The, you, you and your lung capacity are taking the place of the... Uh, gunpowder cartridge on a rifle basically now blow darts aren't uh, rifled uh like a, a rifle is but you uh depending on your uh, dart manufacturer you could get uh rifling effects with the uh, flights you know sometimes blow darts will have feathers on them sometimes they'll just be a long stick of metal uh to stabilize itself in the air you know there's a lot of cool engineering that has taken place in different cultures to create these uh, blow dart guns in lots of different shapes and sizes. You know, what I what I like about that is it's designed really well for what it's supposed to do, which is close range projectile. So you're farther away than having to touch someone like stab them or, you know, you can still hide in the bushes and never reveal yourself, for instance, but but not so far away that you're having to do all the excessive design of a gun or even something that I love. As you all know, during the pandemic, I became a very, very big fan of archery, um, which is great and go farther than a blowgun. But it's still a very large thing that you have to carry around, put together, take apart. So there are some interesting trade-offs in the blowgun dart technology that I find fascinating from a projectile design perspective. Yeah, the archery is great because... What's cool about what's good about archery over a blowgun is because the arrow is much more massive than the blow dart, uh, you, it'll carry a lot further and you can get a much better range on it. Uh, but but what's great about both of them is you can put poison on the tips, and that's <laughs> and so you know what's really great about these over guns is one they're silent, so you can stay hidden uh, much easier from your adversary. But also with uh, poisonous darts or arrowheads, you're, all you really have to do to your enemy is nick them enough that you get that poison into their uh, primary bloodstream, um, and then they'll die anyways. Whereas with a bullet, uh, you, you really have to get them in a much more vital place um, to, uh, to really put somebody down with a gun. No, I think that that's right. I am curious, uh, what's the difference between a primary bloodstream and a secondary bloodstream? Do we have a secondary bloodstream and what's it doing? Not so much prime. I guess what I'm saying is if you get somebody, it's just like a, a, a nick on the skin. You might just be hitting some of those surface capillaries that are in your skin layers that don't actually get a lot of blood flow and therefore you're not getting enough poison into the bloodstream quickly to kill somebody. You really want to nick a bigger artery or vein a little lower down. I, you're exactly right, Ben. If you With some of these poisons, you got to get it in deep. It's got to go into the blood supply. But the scary part is for these poison darts, they are poisoned by, drum roll please, wait for it, the poison dart frog. This is an entire group of frogs that all have extraordinarily poisonous secretions on their skin. Uh, and this is, th this secretion is generated by the food that they eat. It's created by their diet. And this stuff can actually be absorbed through your skin, so you actually don't have to get it in either your primary or secondary circulatory system. And that is kind of what's scary to me, but also, as you mentioned, Ben, extraordinarily efficient when it comes to killing people silently, which for some reason, uh, I'm very surprised that you're so interested in, Ben. Yeah, you know, that's right, Dan. You know, silent but deadly is always the best way to go. And Dan, we know 
from all of our Comic-Con episodes and our past shows that Ben is secretly an evil engineer trying to take over the world and much smarter than most of the other evil um, engineers out there in that he has actually well-designed plans. And Silent is clearly a well-designed plan. I I couldn't agree with you more. And here's the other part of that. Speaking of Silent, guys, you're going to love this, Ben. Uh, When it comes to this poison, the way it works is it stops your your nerve endings from emitting pulses to your muscles, which means your muscles stop moving, which means you can't move, you can't scream, and also your heart, which is made entirely out of muscle, stops working. So talk about silent. This is the ultimate silent killer. Ben, are you excited about this quick little uh, factoid? You know, when it comes to the different types of toxins, neurotoxins are definitely a lot scarier than... Well, I mean, hemotoxins are really scary, too, because then your your blood just gets uh, murdered by the toxin. You know, all kinds of toxins are pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, and I think these are, you know, not only are these used by the indigenous people as as Indiana Jones is trying to make a make to the airplane, this getaway car, so to speak, with his life, but also when he's going into the temple, there are lots of fun little traps and all sorts of darts, which we maybe they're poison, maybe they're not. But I, I love this idea of darts and the, the idea of traps. Some of them are light triggered, some are pressure censored. So I'm curious, then I'm going to ask you first, since you've got the hat on, what do you, what was your favorite part of the temple itself and the the um, the security measures that they took to protect this golden idol? That's a good question. You know, in terms of favorite part, I really do like always the weight balanced um, trap at the end. You know, if you have an object and you want to force the person to find and, and estimate the exact right weight and mass, there's lots of things you can do to um, sort of play with the density of your object in hidden ways underneath on the inside. So, you know, that they don't really know what the true mass of that object is. So that's fun. I think the real challenge one for me was the light sensitive one. It's super cool. We've gotten so used to thinking of light sensitive elements, but it really is part of modern silicon technology that you have light sensitive and electrical circuits. So it's really fun to think about from a different, more analog technology. How would you make a light-sensitive trap? I think that engineering challenge is, is probably the biggest one. And not to put Ben on the spot here, but I wonder if in his evil engineer you know, mind, he's been able to come up with a very robust analog light signaling trap, or if this was just a fun part, maybe a misdirection, and the trap was triggered in a different way. It's possible. Uh, one, one consideration is light does have pressure, so maybe there's a very, very sensitive uh, light trap uh, pressure sensor, but then this thing would go off at night too. I mean, part of the problem with this trap in general is what happens at night? Does this thing just go off every night and then reset every morning? Uh, maybe. One possibility is using, um, using living things. Living things are very light sensitive. So maybe there's some plants in there. Plants are known to follow the sun with their um with their leaves so maybe there's some uh machinery that can kind of uh through leverage uh gets uh pushed by a plant trying to go to towards the light and away from the light uh based on that beam being broken 
I mean, it's a good idea, but I mean, light, I mean, plants grow, so it'd be hard to really constrict their size. That's the tricky thing. Life itself is very unpredictable, especially back then. Um, But I like the way you're thinking there, because that is an interesting way to kind of create the trap. And it it begs the question, because, you know, we talked about Goonies, and we had our various different, various different uh, theories on why One-Eyed Willie and his group were creating the traps to protect the treasure. Were they coming back for it? Were they not? But clearly, this is a case where the idol is in there and meant to be protected for all of time. And, you know, really quickly, I'm curious what you guys think. How would your traps be different to protect it forever uh, versus, you know, until someone comes back for it? I'm glad you brought up the the Goonies, Dan, because it 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 allows us to come up with an even better Rube Goldbergian uh, design for this light trap, which is, you know what hates light? Uh, bugs and spiders and things like that. And we see there's tons of tarantulas and whatnot in this tomb. So another possibility is when that light bulb light beam is broken, that allows a bunch of spiders to say climb onto the area it is now that is now dark and there's a nice pressure plate there. You know, the spiders are gonna live in this tomb forever. So they're gonna be moving back and forth and just basically at night they're gonna, you know, this trap is probably just always odd, is always uh, tripped at night. But, you know, stupid adventures come during the day and they can trip it. I do like that. I, I, I think there's some cleverness here. I like using spiders. They're scary to begin with. So that adds a level of fear to the trap, Dan. You know, your, your fundamental question about long-term design is a big one. And it shows the, the need for relatively simple traps, right? The more moving parts, the more gears you have, the more things to go wrong. So you're not going to build that Goonie-style massive Rube Goldberg device. You're going to keep it as simple as possible. And that's what we tend to see here. You know, step on a plate, uh, a spear comes out, uh, block a light, bad things happen, you know. So it's it's kind of simple design one after the other. Um, and then at the end, basically, you take the gold thing off, we're just going to destroy the whole temple. Like, why the heck not, right? Like, at that point, if you've made it all the way through and you're alive, let's just go for massive destruction in the end. So I think the basic philosophical design here is very solid for long-term lasting. Once the item's no longer there to be protected, you might as well just destroy the whole thing and and hide the secrets. Uh, what's really interesting to me, though, is, is these dart traps. I'd imagine, I don't know how those could be reset. So it really seems to me like the it's the punji sti- side punji stick traps that are the main the main uh, d- deterrent and power in this because those seem to be able to reset unlike everything else here. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and I'd also take issue. I don't know that the big boulder is destroying the temple. I think its design is to block the entrance so that the idol never leaves. Um, because in some ways it's not a complete destruction of the temple, but it's, I mean, that accidentally getting triggered, I mean, you'd have to really make sure that that was engineered properly because you don't want that boulder to accidentally get triggered. Although now that I think about it, does it really matter if the, if the front temple is blocked because who's coming in there except plunderers, you know, as we're talking about, it's there to protect the idol. Um, but you know, the thing we can say is that is this, it's, not underground, but it is this room where you're protecting something very important. And that this is where you're broadcasting from, from Ben. We're going to move on to the, the actual the map room where they find out where the Ark is located. And yes, we are going to get to the Ark in a second. And one thing, this is a great place for me to mention. You guys know what's coming. I know you do. And that is a quick little 
a quick little promotion for Fascinating Nouns, my other podcast, where I spoke with a guy named Eric Kurlander about the Nazis and the Third Reich and their interest in the occult, which is a theme throughout all of the Indiana Jones movies. And I love this because this map room is extraordinarily complex way, an underground three-dimensional map on where to find the Ark. This seems like overkill. I feel like they could have done this a little bit better. Um, but, but I'm curious, Ben, how would you have designed this differently? I, well, I think the map room works very well. I think, you know, you have this, you know, fun little light scepter thing that focuses the light. You know, you could imagine, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be very impressive to do that with a crystal, but certainly you could do something like that with a lens. Um, I mean, obviously you could uh, mark, you could uh, cut that crystal into a lens. And so I, I really actually don't see any issue with this. Uh, the only real issue I would see that's, a real big deal is um, the fact that it works potentially every day. Um, you know, the sun, uh, the sun is not in the same position in the sky every day. And I could certainly imagine that it would be difficult to make a room like this work every day. Uh, I suspect it actually only works like one day a year, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll allow them that, uh, that freedom. Now I really think here that actually it does only work one day a year, Ben and Indy just got lucky. Um, I think that's a key subtle piece. If you remember, they only had the Nazis only had one side of the thing. Indy happened to be lucky and have both. I'm willing to bet there was extra inscription somewhere, and this was an extra security measure that you had to be patient. If you wanted the Ark, you had to look on the exact right day. You know, Dan, I think from a secret design point of view, if you're thinking you might forget which building you hid it in, so you need a map to come back to. Um, not a bad idea because it's a pretty good cipher, particularly if it only works one day a year. Portability, though, is a problem, right? If you want to take a map with you um, to be able to find something later, clearly this is not going to work well. It has some major design flaws as the entire room is not portable at all by definition. No, no, not at all. And I do want to mention one of my favorite books growing up was The Hobbit. And to get into uh, The Lonely Mountain, you know, it's when the thrush knocks three times on a very specific day. I thought that was ridiculous, but that is when The Hobbit and the entire group got there. So maybe that is a theme in these types of stories. One other thing I really like about it is that the instructions for making the stick are on the medallion. Uh, you know, you see, you, you know, getting that amulet to the right height is critical and relying on the stick surviving for eons is really dangerous. You know, it's, it, its length could change, it could shrink, it could warp. You know, it's really good that they put those directions. Another thing I thought of is we saw all these different holes on the ground. Now, one possibility is you just had to know the right hole. But maybe that those holes are like some sort of calendar system where depending on what day you're you're there, you put it you 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 choose the right hole for that day. I like that, Ben. I like that. And and maybe that gives you more than one day, but not every day of the year. So you have a little more flexibility as to when yeah. you can come back. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's a brilliant solution, I think. Um, and I hope that they worked in leap year. I don't know how that worked in, in ancient Egypt, but I would imagine that they probably figured that out as well. Um, it, but this beam, this this kind of magical beam that comes out onto this underground three-dimensional map tells them where the Ark is, and that is the name of this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've got to talk about the Ark because this has some fantastical problems, or the, uh, properties, I should say, which cause a lot of problems for anyone who tries 
tries to open it. And these are, they're seemingly divine in nature, but I think we can analyze this and explain this through physics. Denon, I know your expertise is on ancient aliens as far as ancient alien technology. What did you see when you first saw this movie? Did anything ring a bell? Do you think this was put here long ago? You know, the interesting thing about it, Dan, really is one of its main powers, um, both in the movie and sort of in mythology, is related to electric discharges, right? Lightning comes out, people get shocked, you can die from electricity. And, and the fun thing about it from a physics point of view is static electricity is certainly the easiest electricity to make. We all have fun at some point in our life rubbing our feet on the ground and shocking people, right? And you just have to take this to a higher level. We also know the basic physics of a parallel plate capacitor is if you can put a dielectric material, something that's not conducting between two conducting plates, you can increase the capacitance significantly. So it's always a fun little idea to think of the arc as gold outside, gold inside. That's your two parallel plates, a dielectric insulator between. Um, and I just love the idea of a bunch of, you know, temple priests running around with socks on their feet, generating a bunch of uh, static electricity, adding it to the arc slowly, building up power. And then when you come in and you're trying to steal it, zap, you know, it's a major um, burst of electricity and you're not dead or paralyzed. So there, there's some interesting tech there in a very basic static sense of tech. Well, we'll say that you talk about static electricity being something that's fun that we do as kids. It sounds sick, Denon. I've never done that. But also, this is definitely a higher level because it turns that static electricity and starts to melt people. So this is the understatement of the century there, Denon. This is a terrifying technology. Ben, what did you make of it? Yeah, so, I mean, lightning does kind of melt you. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you get hit by lightning, th there's enough uh, heat there that you know, you basically are burned and you do kind of melt. Um, it's not a prolonged, weird wax thing like we see in the uh, movie, but you do kind of get that s sort of effect from, uh, from lightning bolts. So that part I don't have too much issue with. It's really the how do you get enough voltage and, and uh, amperage uh, into a capacitor like that to do that kind of damage. You know, when I worked uh, on electric propulsion devices, we would have uh, entire walls of giant capacitors the sizes of paint cans, um, and even that wouldn't be enough energy to uh, melt you. So, you know, how it, it's really the arc needs to be um, tapping into power um, beyond its own dimensions to produce that kind of energy to melt somebody. So I think there's also some sort of, um, maybe it's ability, maybe the idols on the top are acting as some sort of a lightning rod. So that's able to harness the power of the storm that happen that's uh, going when it's uh, during this ritual to open it. Um, you know, it's it's gotta be getting more energy than what it could contain in its own uh, space. Or it's using something more advanced like nuclear power. <laughs> no, I think that there's something there, Ben, but I've got to ask you something much more important first. You said you worked in a room with capacitors the size of paint cans all over the walls, and that yes. wasn't enough energy to melt a human being. No. I got to tell you, you wouldn't know that unless you tried. Explain yourself. <laughs> well, that's true. We, we were very well trained to not actually touch any of those uh, capacitors. But just from the amount of energy that went into these devices, uh, it was... 
it would it could certainly kill you, but it wouldn't melt you. <laughs> and Dan, that's an important distinction. Uh, when I was talking about the electricity, I of course was talking about killing, not melting. The melting is a whole nother level. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this, people go right to nuclear power. And this is, I think, one of our greatest challenges, um, you know, is to think about how to make small nuclear generators to make electricity. We obviously can make them somewhat small. We have nuclear-powered submarines. But the nuclear reaction, the nuclear part of a, a reactor, is never making electricity directly. It's always making heat that you then have to put into some sort of turbine system by making steam or something else to generate the electricity. And so the arc has that challenge. If you're Even if you're thinking of nuclear power as the source, you need a really good way to turn that nuclear energy, which is basically just heat, into electricity somewhere inside the device. So there's a lot of additional challenges with this. That's why I kind of like the conductor idea that it's conducting the lightning through it, um, perhaps as a more um, efficient or reasonable design choice. You do need a storm at that point, which might explain why you have a ritual. Maybe the ritual is what gives you the storm. Well, I got, I got something for you, Den, and I got your answer. I've got a solution to the arc, and I think you're going to like it. And Ben, I think you're going to be able to make it. And that is, you know, one of the key things to this particular scene is we see it explode. All this energy comes out. It's basically broken into the battery, and all this energy is going crazy. But at the end of it, all these people melt. They're, they're disintegrated. They're reduced to their base parts. And then they disappear. Well, what happens? What if that the arc is actually converting the mass of the people directly into energy, E equals MC squared style, and then the battery is an extraordinarily large capacity battery, and then is storing that energy inside of the arc? How does the physics hold up on that, Denon? Uh, you know, first of all, I'll just say that's super creepy, Dan. <laughs> So, well, we'll does it work though, Denon? That's the question. Does it work? Creepiness aside. Well, it, it just reminded me of the, the nuclear power generator that we get in one of our favorite movies, Dan, Back to the Future, right? When you go to the future and you could make nuclear power off of banana peels and beer cans, only here you're using people, hence the creepy factor. Um, but, you know, as, as a basic principle, you know, yes, okay, I'm taking the creepiness out. People are matter, and you can turn that matter into energy. It always comes down to your storage device. How do you get that energy that's being created, which is usually released in a massive explosion of some sort, um, but actually instead of getting an explosion, get that controlled burn and conversion to actually energy that can be stored. Um, so the physics is not totally out there. Um, but the engineering design is where all the problems are in this basic idea. So I'm going to turn it to Ben um, to answer the creepy factor design questions. It's certainly, po it's certainly possible that there's some sort of fusion s situation going on here where the people are being converted to energy and that energy is then being dissipated. I, there's also a, 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 you know, a simpler explanation of you know, with a hot enough uh, fire nuclear uh, you know, maybe it's less a nuclear reactor and more a nuclear bomb sort of situation going here where the people are not just melted, but eventually incinerated. And it's not that they're disappearing. They're just uh, burning up entirely and their ashes are floating away. So that's another possibility. Although I, I do enjoy the idea of, albeit creepy, I do enjoy the idea that each time the arc is opened, the uh, unworthy of uh, seeing the beauty of the arc uh, 
increase its destructive power for future openers. Well, no surprises that you find that to, <laughs> to be um, comforting. Is that the word you use, comforting? <laughs> but I, well, I think it's comforting that the protection of this uh, device gets stronger and stronger over time as more and more uh, people try to uh, exploit it. You know, a weapon that uh, increases its own protections automatically is is great. Well, I think we have to answer the question of why when you close your eyes, are you protected? I'm not sure that we can answer that quickly or completely. I don't want to put, you know, we've, we've done really well here, but this might be the trickiest one. Then do you have an explanation for that? So this is definitely a challenge, Dan, to understand how closing your eyes can protect you. But I do think it goes to something we haven't really explored that might be going on here is some quantum element to the device. We all know in quantum mechanics, if you don't observe something, it doesn't actually necessarily happen in the sense that you don't know whether you're in state A or B. So by closing your eyes, you're not actually measuring anything about the arc. And so you neither die nor live. You kind of stay in this quantum state. And then when you open your eyes, the arc is now closed. And so there's nothing dangerous going on and you live. That's the best I can do, Dan. Um, it seems to be a quantum defense that if you close your eyes, um, I would think you'd want to cover your ears too, but maybe the eyes are good enough. Hey, look, if you're Schrodinger's cat, I mean, you don't know if you're alive or dead. Uh, I think that that is Schrodinger's cat come to life and a great way to end it. Uh, we don't know if it's a good answer. We don't know if it's a bad answer. We'll let you decide, the listeners. But we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section. If we've missed anything besides a great answer for whether your eyes protect, closing your eyes protects you from the arc, um, this is where we're going to put it. Denon, did you have anything you wanted to add here? I do want to add two things, Dan. One is, if I may, um, I would like to actually put a plug in for my favorite whip person, um, Aaron Bonk. And this is a great tie-in because it goes to the hat as well. Um, little known fact, I got the hat at a Renaissance fair. I love Renaissance fairs. I first saw Aaron Bonk at a Renaissance fair. He combines two of my favorite things, juggling and whips. Um, something we know Ben is great at, juggling. So it all comes together. And it brings me to the hat, Dan. And one of the things I love in the movie is that he never loses the hat. And something I've discovered about my hat, it's shockingly wind resistant. I've worn this hat in incredibly high winds, and it has stayed on my head. One of the few hats to do that. So it just... It all comes together for me, Dan. That's my errors and missions and additions. Well, we you know we talked about plungers in the Goonies episode. I don't know if there's something like that going on with the design of the hat fitting on your head. But I got to ask you something before I let you go, Denon, because if your hat fell off and you were sliding underneath a gigantic concrete door as it was coming crashing down, would you stick your hand under to grab that hat or would you just go to the next Renaissance Fair? I would definitely stick my hand under and grab the hat. It was a gift from my daughter and it's in a very expensive hat. It's well worth the risk. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, ben, our, 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 our resident juggler and blow dart expert, do you have anything else to add about Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I'm also a gold is heavy expert. And, you know, Indiana really did not get enough sand to uh, properly uh, compensate for stealing that idol. That idol would have weighed a lot, way more than a couple handfuls of sand. And so... You know, Indiana really needs to learn a little bit about uh, how that that all works. <laughs> I, I, that's very important, especially when you've got a gigantic boulder that is, hangs in the balance, literally and figuratively. Um, I've got a couple, you know, on the Goonies episode, I think I said Oswald Cobblepot or David Copperfield. It's actually Chester Copperpot. I want to make that very clear. Um, you know, we've looked at the, the people melting. Special effects have come a very long way, guys. A very long way since 1981, I think, when this came out. Um, 
Um, you know, one of the, the drinking game at the beginning of this movie where Karen Allen's character, I forget her name in the movie, um, she drinks one less shot than the guy that she's going up against. That doesn't seem fair. I would imagine, I've, I don't do a lot of drinking games, but shouldn't everyone drink the exact same amount, especially of that potent moonshine up there in, in the mountains? Um, there's one little part here. I, I, I think it is hilarious, and I'm, I may get into a lot of trouble, so I take full responsibility for saying this, but there's one scene where the little monkey, the adorable little monkey is running around and these two Nazi officers come into the tunnel and the little monkey puts his hand up in a Sieg Heil, which is horrible, but also kind of cute. I don't know. I've never seen any animal make a, something as diabolical as the Sieg Heil look as adorable. Um, that monkey really pulled it off. And of course, staring at a King Cobra, does it work? Um, it appears to be a real thing. I'm going to put up a, a link on our website because I, although I'm not going to do it personally, people have used it to great effect. And and, you know, we got to give them credit. So we've, you know, if, if you want to get in touch with us, it's easy to do. The show is easy to find on social media. We're on Facebook at FGGBT. We're on Twitter at FGGBT pod. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me, Dan, um, on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name at Denon Michael. And then if you're looking for me on Facebook, it's at Prof Denon Michael. You got to stick in the prof. Ben. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn. So if you've decided that you want to attain the arc for unbridled power over not only yourself, but of mankind, you're a supervillain. And you don't want to be that. You want to be a superhero. So put the Ark back into the ground, hide it from the Nazis, do the right thing, and make sure that you remain a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.